Good afternoon. I came here today to talk to you about 1965. 1965 was quite a year. 1965 was one of those years where on January 1st, 1966, people were probably like, whoo, I am so glad that's over. Kind of like how January 1st, 2021 will likely look. Because I, for one, I'm done with 2020. This year of vision, I've seen enough. So anyway, back to 1965. The number one movie in 1965 was The Sound of Music. Remember that one? Julie Andrews spinning through the tall grass, singing The Hills Are Alive with The Sound of Music. Dr. Zhivago was also on the list that year. Some say it was the greatest love story of that time. Some would say of all time. Popular music that year included I Can't Get No Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. Remember that? And one of my personal favorites by the Four Tops, Sugar Pie Honey Bunch. You know that I love you. I can't help myself. I love you and nobody else. Yeah, you remember that. 1965 was the year that the Civil Rights Movement was brought to the front steps of Alabama with the marches on Selma. Yes, I said marches. There were three. Did you know that? The first will forever be known as Bloody Sunday. Look that up if you dare. The second, a few days later, would be halted by Martin Luther King at the Edmund Pettus Bridge, the site of the previously mentioned Bloody Sunday. The third and final march started almost two weeks later and culminated with 25,000 marchers arriving at the state capitol in support of voting rights. 1965 was the year that Malcolm X was assassinated. Just as he began to his address to the Organization of African American Unity, he was gunned down by several gunmen at the Audubon Ballroom in New York City. The Houston Astrodome opened in 1965 and the World's Fair permanently closed. 1965 marked the year that the United States entered the Vietnam War. It was also the year that Muhammad Ali knocked out Sonny Liston in the first round of their second fight. The Watts riots happened in 1965, and the Gateway Arch in St. Louis was completed in 1965. And on January 20th, 1965, President Lyndon B. Johnson was sworn in for his first full term as the 36th President of the United States of America. Weeks before, in his State of the Union address, he provided the details of his great society, a set of domestic programs designed with the main goal of the total elimination of poverty and racial injustice. Some of these programs included Medicare, Medicaid, and the Older Americans Act. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 was signed into law by LBJ, and he signed the most far-reaching legislation at the time regarding education, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. Hmm, you know what? I'm done talking about 1965. Let's start there and move forward with the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, or the ESEA. Now, this act was an effort to use federal funds and policies to improve educational opportunities for the children of America. The act introduced legislation that would establish Title I and the funds to back it up, special ed provisions for students, and bilingual education programs. The law required reauthorization every three years with a focus on the allocation or reallocation of federal spending. There was no accountability nor provision for student achievement. After four cycles of reauthorization, the Reagan administration in 1981 replaced the act with the Education and Consolidation Improvement Act. More than just a reauthorization, this act curtailed federal intervention and funding for schools. Instead, the roles of state and local government were expanded in the administration of education. This should have been a good thing, but instead, two things occurred. 
Number one, federal funding was cut by more than $1 billion. Number two, student achievement was still missing from the equation. According to the National School Boards Association, the act said little of classroom instruction and provided little incentives to experiment or innovate their practice. The next reauthorization led to the Hawkins Stanford Elementary and Secondary School Improvement Act of 1988. Now that's a mouthful. This act was refocused on cultivating school improvement. Funding was tied to program improvement and school-wide projects. It also raised the achievement standard for low-income students by emphasizing advanced skills instead of basic ones and also increased parental involvement. This sounds like a dream plan, right? Wrong. According to the transcripts from the Congressional hearing on the Hawkins-Stafford Act, each school district is supposed to evaluate and deal with the improvement of every pupil in every class, and that school district is supposed to evaluate and do the same thing with all schools of the district. Then they are to submit that to the evaluation office and the state office of education in accordance with the time and formatting guidelines set by the Secretary of Education. If completed, submitted, and approved, funds could be allocated. If not, then not. No wonder it didn't work. It survived one reauthorization and was replaced in 1994 with the Improving Schools Act, a close revision of the original Education Act from 1965. The Improving Schools Act, signed by William Jefferson Clinton, allowed for increased funding and additional programs aimed to reform education. Title I programs allowed for extra help for disadvantaged students and promised to hold schools accountable for showing results for these students to be on par with other students. Funding was also put in place for charter schools and programs instituted to support safe and drug-free schools. Key benefits of this program included a simplified consolidation application process to request support funds and a less detailed process for the reporting on the usage of said funds. For the first time, this act included a waiver provision. Now states and local school districts had a workaround for the statutory or regulatory requirements that inhibited the implementation of effective programs or reform efforts. Could this be the change the states and local districts needed to see? Not for long. 2001 brought a yet another revision of the act in the form of No Child Left Behind. This law affected every public school in the United States, aiming to level the playing field for students in poverty, minority students, students in special education, and ELA students. Sounds good? Schools had to institute statewide math and reading tests every year in grades three through eight, and once in grades 10 through 12. All students had to perform at a proficient level meeting the adequate yearly progress guidelines as set forth in the law. Title I schools that didn't meet the requirements would be marked as needing improvement. Those schools then faced the danger of having their administration removed or even closure in some cases. Does it still sound good? No, it doesn't. As long as the school was performing well, it had flexibility in how federal funding was spent. For struggling schools, the possible penalties were too much. There was so much focus placed on standardized testing that the entire concept of teaching versus learning was oftentimes circumvented by providing information specific to the test. We call that teaching to the test. Furthermore, there were no attempts to reauthorize the law as previous reiterations of the law had been in the past. So, it doesn't work. It's ineffective. 
disadvantaged schools are still not being supported, but it's what we have, so that's it? Really? No child left behind would remain in limbo with no attempts to reauthorize until it was replaced in 2015. So in 2015, in the final year of his presidency, Barack Obama was able to sign into law yet another revision, this time the Every Student Succeeds Act. The latest revision kept some portions of No Child Left Behind and repealed others. Under this new law, teacher evaluation plays a much greater role in establishing proficiency goals. However, as a way around that, that waiver I mentioned before, oh yeah, it's still available. Testing parameters are way more flexible, and perhaps best of all, standardized testing is no longer a federal mandate. The Federal Department of Education has also adopted a neutral standard on academic standards, and with districts performing in the upper 95% or with graduation rates higher than 65%, well, they can do what they want without federal guidance, involvement, or oversight. So let me rephrase that. If six and a half of every 10 groups of students are graduating, you can do what you want to do. Six and a half. What about the other three and a half? Pedals in the wind, pebbles in the sand, casualties of war. 2020, the year of vision. Four and a half years after its implementation, is every student succeeds working? Well, as of today, students are still in the process of implementing the law. Four and a half years, still in the process. Students who were in middle school when the law was signed are graduating this month. Some of them got left behind. Others never got the chance to be set up for success. Four and a half years is a long time to get something started. On the other hand, No Child Left Behind had a 14-year run, and turning a ship around of that size can take some time. It can be of particular interest that within the fines of, of the federal law, the federal government has adopted this neutral stance I talked about. What does that even mean? Do the states have the flexibility to implement it on their own time? Yes, they do. Is there any mandate that forces them to implement it all? Not sure about that. But if they don't, oh well, the government is neutral. What are they going to do about it? States have the ultimate authority on how and when to implement the law and how it filters to school districts is another matter entirely. So how effective is it? Depends on who you ask. The effectiveness of the program ranges from we're thinking about it to oh we're trying to do something about it. So who has the authority to get anything done? Now that's a lot of information, so allow me to summarize it for you. In 1965, we have the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. Funding only, no state control, no focus on student achievement. 1981, the Education Consolidation and Improvement Act. Cut funding, control expanded to states. Still no focus on student achievement. 1988, the Hawkins-Stafford Act. More funding, more state control, a focus on student achievement and accountability. Huge bureaucratic process to secure funding. 1994, Improving Schools Act. Funding, check. State control and accountability, check. Too much red tape and you need to get things done? We got a waiver for that. The federal government starts supporting charter schools. Hmm, I guess that's where those, come, those came from. 2001, No Child Left Behind. Funding is tied to performance and more important, improvement. All public schools included. Standardized testing is mandatory. Schools fear retaliation for failure to perform. Waivers are still in place, but good luck getting one approved. 2015, every student succeeds. Funding is increased. State and local governments decide on how and when to implement the program and how school districts receive funding. Federal government has a neutral position. 
standardized testing is no longer mandatory. And as long as you're graduating two thirds of your students, no one will bat an eye. Oh yeah, it expires in September. We're in May. So that's June, July, August, September, four months. And then what? I'll tell you what, we have 55 years of flip-flop federal legislation and we have nothing. Schools still need improving. A whole lot of children got left behind and every student is definitely not succeeding. We've seen a lot of the what, but does anyone remember the why? When LBJ revealed his great society, he established a series of programs and policies with the goal of the total elimination of poverty and racial injustice. The total elimination of poverty and racial injustice. The Elementary and Secondary Education Act was one of those programs. It was an effort to use federal funds and policies to improve educational opportunities for the children of America. And 55 years later, where are we? I'll tell you where we are. We're not much farther than where we begin. So remember, this country is founded upon principles of racial injustice. The founding fathers designed this country for the benefit of their own goals and for the preservation of people who look like them. Anything that came as an amendment was an afterthought, and most of those weren't granted with a smile, but forced through blood and tears. Make no mistake, this has been a war. Even LBJ called it a war on poverty. It wouldn't have been a war if all parties just agreed that it was just wrong. Isn't poverty wrong? Isn't racial injustice wrong? No one's gonna disagree with you on the right and wrong aspect, but they will say, well, that was then, and this is now. And times have changed, and you should be just proud to live in the land of the free where anything is possible. Well, I got answers for them too. Was it just then? Is it different now? Have times really changed? Is this land free? Is everything possible for everyone? So let's close with this. Let's say someone wants to build a manure farm in your community. You'd resist that, right? Too dirty, too smelly, undesirable traffic. Would it matter if they planted floral bouquets all around it? Would it matter if they assured you that all traffic would be supervised and the area surrounding it would be constantly cleaned? No, it wouldn't matter. No matter how they dressed it up, you still have a large pile of dung right in the middle of your neighborhood. And no matter what, the smell, the presence, and the fact of its existence will always be overwhelming. The only way to make it right is to get rid of the dung. Well, racial injustice is that dung, and in addition to many other social institutions, like the government, justice department, housing department, civil and human rights, education has just built policies around it to try to make it less noticeable, to try to make the impact of this injustice less of a factor in the educational system. And it's not working, and it's not going to work. Even the National Education Administration has gone on record to say that despite any state level of successes that have occurred since its implementation, significant change will not occur until racial justice is addressed. So when do we get to talk about that? Thank you.